Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. Scott Gardner here. Thanks for tuning in yet again. This week, we're kicking it kind of old school. This past weekend was an especially busy one for me, what with school and all. Then on uh, Sunday, Michael Bailey and I attended the Atlanta Comic Convention and had an absolute blast just hanging out, digging through cheap old funny books together. But as a result of all that, we did not get a chance to record a new episode. So instead, sit back and enjoy one of a handful of previously unreleased Lost episodes that were recorded just prior to Michael's joining the show. And we'll catch you next week. This is Back to the Bins, and I am Scott Gardner. Thank you for listening, and please welcome back to this show, Mr. Ken Morgan, known as Logan McLeod on the ComicForums.com and host of the Too Old to Grow Up podcast, which you may find at www.TooOldToGrowUp.com and also co-host of the Legion of Dudes podcast, which you may find at LegionOfDudes.com. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Why, thank you, Scott. It's always a pleasure. Hey, it's always a pleasure to have you, sir. And you are going first this time because I'm too damn lazy to. All right. Uh, let's jump right in. I think last time I was on, I had an issue of Action Comics. And yes, I believe it was, it was one a, of the, It was a was, great one, yeah. It was fun. It was one of, the, one of the oldest comics I have. This one is um, only a few years, few years younger than, than that one, if you will. This is from 1974, August 1974 it is. It is an action comics um, written by Carrie Bates, Kurt Swan artist again, and this is called A Monster Named Lois Lane. It's another <laughs> one of those bin finds where I'm like, that cover looks interesting. Um, it's number 438 for those, those keeping track at home. And it's, it's um, Lois Lane with rather dise- disheveled hair um, with Superman and a half Nelson. And um, <laughs> I'm like, I, I've got to know what's going on. So we'll find out what's going on about the monster named Lois Lane. And I will say there's another backup feature in this one. The man who tape recorded the Atom. Yeah, that should be fun. Tape recorded him doing what? (laughs) (laughs) I I think tape recorded him going through the phone line. Oh, that doesn't sound as sordid as what I had. Oh, I know. I know. Him and Gene, you never know. So Clark and Lois are sharing a cab, and Lois has a bit of a cold. She's sneezing. Um, so, so Clark decides to make her feel a little better and give her her birthday gift a little bit early, which is a, uh, a piece of jewelry, a little gaudy, I think, by today's standards, but for 74, yeah, whatever, and puts it on. She throws a kiss on Clark, thanking him, just as, boom, she hulks out almost, if you will, um, burst through the top of the cab, 
you know, fist through the window. She has uh, these you know crazy eyes and vampire-like teeth, and is grown to enormous proportions relative to the car itself. Um, the the amulet or necklace she had on gets tossed by the wayside, but she still is uh, she's she's still you know huge uh, as far as as her physique. And escapes. So Clark uh, ducks out and finds a way to quickly change into Superman and chases after her um, as he's flying underneath an elevated ele- an elevated train uh, rail line. A fist bursts through the 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 tracks, the, uh, the the railroad ties, and it's Lois grabbing him and pulling him up through through the railway. Um, she. She f- crashes through the ties because apparently the train, the trainway can't take the strain of her massive weight. It can carry the train itself, but not her, I guess. And she falls away just as the train is approaching. So Superman is like, "Well, I can't. L- the train hits this track. It will, it will crash because it's all damaged. But I have to go after her as well." So Superman flies away after Lois, but doesn't have his cape. Finds someone who saw this giant woman. F- it even says, this female Hulk went down the drain. You've got to be kidding me. No, she shrunk down to this size, like, you know, you know, really small, and then went down the drain. So apparently she can now grow and shrink at will. Um, we see, find out what happened to Superman's cape. He set up a super break with his indestructible cape, and that stopped the train, leaving it behind. So he flies back to the Daily Planet, changes in his broom closet, but we see peeking through the window is Hulk Lois, and he sees... Him changing back into Clark, into a suit. And he f- catches a glimpse of her and goes after her, but she shrunk down and is gone. But now Hulk Lois knows, or apparently knows, Clark is Superman. That's not good. Um, so we've got to find uh, find Lois. So he's trying to get through the Daily Planet. He gets back to uh, start to um, type me through all the, his assignments so to not give away that he hasn't been doing anything, I guess. Melts his typewriter because he's typing so fast. Sees the local the, the the resident gossip columnist Lola, not Cat. I guess I don't know if Cat wasn't introduced yet or not. Um, talking to the cab driver about what happened. So like, oh, we can't have that. So Superman decides to. The only lead he has is the necklace itself. So he seeks out that necklace and he tra- follows its trail. Apparently, it has some radioactive properties, so he's able to follow. He's able to follow its radioactive trail, and apparently, some woman found it on the sidewalk and she's wearing it now, but she's perfectly fine in fact and she's like you know what's the danger to me doesn't don't i look lovely and superman can only say no arguments there miss and flies away she's showing no ill effects but everybody now knows or recognizes that the this 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 giant beast-like woman is in fact lois lane the the radio and the newspapers are all reporting where will monster lois strike next um clark is back at his home recording on his tape recorder that, uh, you know, symptoms are first are starting to appear with me. I've been wearing disguise and plastic gloves to hide myself. And he takes them all off. And you see here is, he is very feral looking himself bigger than he normally is. His own teeth are protruding. Like I said, uh, you know, uh, you know, exaggerated canines that brings Lois out after him. They, they attack almost, almost tame because she's like recognizing this hulked out Superman as being like him, like her. Although she then discovers that it's just padding underneath his uniform, his, his costume. 
he, it's just a ruse to try to draw her out. And uh, she attacks him. They start fighting again, but he shines a little flashlight in her face. And all of a sudden, she's back to being Lois again and doesn't remember anything. The only thing she remembers is Clark giving her a necklace. Uh, doesn't know what happened as, as the freak. Um, she's like, and then Superman starts to think to himself what had happened. He brings up the speed. It was this Andromedan necklace. Apparently, it was a necklace from another galaxy and had its own properties. And the necklace's radiation would not have affected Lois if not for her weakened immune system, her resistance. She was sick. So it affected her, and that caused her to hulk out. So I used my knowledge of advanced Kryptonian science to devise a miniature cold cure, which was the little flashlight thing he's he's shown in her face, and that cured her of her cold. The the now healthy Lois was able to counteract the effects of the necklace and turn back to old friend Lois again, and they kiss again, and we all live happily ever after until the next issue. So the monster named Lois Lane was just a necklace. All right, again, with Superman being proven to be kind of an asshole because here he cured the common cold 33 years ago, <laughs> but he only did it to, like, get himself out of hot water with the, the shitty gift he gave his girlfriend that How caused about him it? to become a monster. He didn't, like, share it with the rest of mankind. See, and that was – that's the takeaway you got. I'm just like – Really, Superman? You're that good of a scientist? I, I didn't know that about you. <laughs> I mean, you, you. I mean, yeah, I get you got the the fancy supercomputer, Samsung crystal, whatever it is you got in this era. But still, you were raised on a farm. What do you know from science? <laughs> <laughs> well, plus, okay, the whole ruse with him becoming a monster and all that doesn't quite hold up to logic because the scene where he's in his apartment, he's alone and talking into a tape recorder about... She, she can shrink. So he is playing out that, you know, she could be watching him at any oh, time. Oh, okay. All right, all right. Okay, I guess so, this makes some sense. Right. I, I guess. <laughs> I guess. As we said last time, it's the Silver Age. It doesn't have yeah. to make sense. Yeah, you, know, you, can't, oh, you can't think too hard about yeah, it. Yeah, you spend too much time on that, you'll, you'll punch holes for the whole thing that it will be that they should be worthless. Uh, let me go through the fun backup real quick I don't know who this villain is um, necessarily I, I can't, didn't catch his name yet but he is the man who tape recorded the Atom and apparently he's kidnapped Jean Loring because she works with Dr. Ray Palmer who has a secret to shrinking it didn't work for him so we, so we, everybody thinks so he tried the experiment himself and it turns out what happened was um, he is continually to continue to shrink. Dr. Miles Adrian, that's his name. He has been shrinking day by day until I'm now less than five feet tall. You don't look that small to me. Of course not. This wig and these elevator shoes give the illusion of added height. And sure <laughs> enough, he's wearing these very 70s elevator shoes. So we uh, we called Dr. Palmer uh, to, to find out. He's tinkering with his shrink uh, control device. Um, it's on the blink, apparently. It shrinks me okay, but the enlarging control doesn't work properly. So he rings the phone, and it's Gene's on the phone with this 
he's holding this weapon to her head, which is basically a gas. It's it's a it's a ballpoint pen, or excuse me, it's a fountain pen that it's um, he's saying is rigged to be a, a weapon, a gas pen of some type. So he's he's holding her under duress. She's telling uh, Ray that uh, the ad, he must find the atom, and his life depends on calling the following number. So he calls and plays. Turns out that he. This is important to note. He has the radio playing in the background of his of his office. And he's like, well, I was hoping the atom wouldn't be needed until the controls of my belt had been fixed, but I guess I'll just have to wing it. So he jumps into the phone and travels through the phone line. Just as the uh, the the bad guy, the villain, Doctor Miles, or Doctor Adrian, Doctor Miles Adrian, uh, engages the answering machine, and he's like, "What's going on? I'm being recorded." It's like, like the tone that signals a telephone answering telephone telephone answering device is recording the caller's message. Great Scott, I'm going to be taped like a person's voice. Body tingling vision, bodily tingling tingling, vision a brown blur. Can't move. I am trapped on the tape. I gotta enlarge to get out. No dice. My controls won't work. Adam, can you hear me? <laughs> so he's saying, "Keep, come on, you know, you know, tell me the secret of your side ability, or in ten seconds I'll erase the tape." And he's just like, "I don't understand. Why would he kill me if he needs me?" And he's like, "I got to keep jugging my controls, and oh, I'm starting to grow. I feel it." And he literally bursts from the answering machine, destroys it. Um. And he recognizes him as being Professor Miles Adrian. I must not let him recognize me, though. Of course, he is in his costume. He starts firing stuff out of his... The doctor starts firing stuff out of his pen. Ray realizes what the pen is, so he shrinks down and goes into the pen and then then grows out of it, destroying the pen in the process. Uh, Knocks out the the doctor, kisses Gene before he says goodbye, comments that himself that it must be the radio... Um, that was being the, the sound of the radio that was coming through the phone line as well. The vibrations must have jarred his controls loose and fixed them. Well, that solves that problem. Meanwhile, Dr. Adrian is in jail, but he's saying, I wanted him to, to escape my trap. In doing so, he gave me his secrets. And now it's time to put phase two of my plan to operation. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so that is the story of the man who tape recorded the atom. Uh, I don't know about this one. No? Uh, a lot of times in this era, it seems to, to at least to my recollection, you know, because I read most of these when I was a kid, that the backup features, I mean, you know, for one thing, it's got to be tough to follow up Superman. I don't care what what hero you are, even what even asshole Superman in this particular issue. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but I mean, you know, but then to go from Superman to the Atom, I mean, I don't care how awesome the Atom story is going to be. It's the Atom, you know, <laughs> following Superman. So yeah, I, I feel I feel bad for the guy, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it was it was interesting. See that that's the problem is I can't I can't even think of like any good Adam stories I've ever really read. That's probably why I'm so prejudiced against the Adam. It's not like I hate him or anything. I just he's just one of those characters that's like you. eh, you know, doesn't do it for me. And I think this is why. Eh, it could All be worse. The stories are goofy. <laughs> it could be worse. I mean, his his he could talk to fish. I mean. Oh, don't be dissing on my homeboy. Uh, I love Aquaman. I, I had a friend of mine. He's like, the Earth is seventy percent water. He's the most powerful man on the planet. 
<laughs> it's like okay. No, in 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 fairness, no, I think part of of the the thing with Aquaman is deserved because honestly, if it weren't for Jim Aparo's work with Aquaman, I, I don't know that the poor guy would have ever really had any decent stuff out there. Now, there's going to be somebody out there screaming, going, oh, Peter David, Peter David. Well, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I read some of that, and I, I'm sorry. I love Peter David to death, but I, that Aquaman stuff he did was not – it wasn't all that. It was okay. See, but, for me, this a lot of stuff is the first time I'm reading it because I, I wasn't reading comics at this point in my life. And even when I did, when I was in high school, I wasn't reading much DC. I was more Spider-Man and some X-Men stuff. And even then, I was only for a couple years. Mm-hmm. So for me to go back and find this stuff, this is some of the uh, the first time reading this. And as I said last time, I think when I'm looking through stuff, I'm just like finding interesting covers, something that's going to draw my eye. Like, you right. know, oh, I'll read this. And if it's cheap enough, why not? I'll buy it. So so I don't know if this is a fair representation of of the Silver Age of this era, but it, it certainly was a nice diversion from some of the stuff we have now. Not to say whether I do or don't like what's going on right now in, in, in current comics. A lot of stuff I do like, some, some not so much. But it's a nice break from that stuff. What's really funny is uh, I'm looking at the cover. I don't have this particular one in my collection, but I'm looking at the cover image, and I love this. this is, I'm pretty sure this is Nick Cardi, and while I, you know, it is Nick Cardi, yes. I'm not really a fan of his art, like like when he would do a book, for example. Like he, I think he did a lot of Teen Titans back in the day, and so I'm not a fan of his like interior art. But I consider him just one of the the best cover artists ever because he has so many of the just what I consider to be iconic covers of my childhoods. A, a lot of really fantastic Superman covers. Because there, there was one, I couldn't tell you what issue it was, but there's one where Lois Lane in a very 70s outfit is uh, is waiting outside and she's checking her watch. And you see Superman, actually two Supermen flying at her from opposite sides of the page. And they're both thinking, I'm late for my date with Lois Lane. There's that one. There's another one where, uh, it's another iconic cover where Clark is in an alley changing the Superman and like in the background there's like a lightning flash and all this and Lois is ducking around a corner and she says as soon as I round this corner I'll have the secret of how Clark Kent signals Superman covers like that he did a lot of them and he was just a fantastic cover artist and so yeah I, I, I like the cover to this one you know even though she's supposed to be like She-Hulk Lois Lane on this one she's actually kind of hot on this cover <laughs> yeah, even in the book, she's looking pretty good. I mean, you get a close-up shot of those uh, those fans she's got going on, but yeah, you know the the, the, the rip shirt and the bare midriff. I'm like, I'm, I'm in on that. Mm-hmm. There's something about a woman in ripped up clothes like that too. Oh it's, yeah, I don't know what it is. <laughs> We're just perverted, I guess. Yeah. What was- the hell town is this behind them on the cover too? It's like that's not Metropolis. That looks like. I don't know. Is that supposed to be like? It's too big to be Smallville, though. But it's weird. You know, it's just it's way off in the distance. But like the yeah. The, yeah. the the prominent building front and center is like this big church. It's just right. It looks really strange. Yeah, it's just a it's a gust of cover. Yeah, I like the cover though. I like the guy on the on the right with in the in the funky pants. <laughs> guy well, in the foreground. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's like, yeah, cheering them all on. (laughs) 
Oh, I love it. You know what? I just realized it almost looks like it's guys on one side and girls on the other. It, it, it's not almost. It is that. Yeah. It is. Is it? Yeah, yep. I guess you're right. I wonder if that was intentional. It might have been. <laughs> like they're at the high school dance and they're waiting to, you know, everybody's just looking at each other. <laughs> I love it. Wait, waiting for the first ones to go out and then everybody dances. I love it. What year did you say this was? 70? This is 74, August 74. Oh man, they just don't make them like. I just want to point out that from the last one I did a few weeks, few however, however long goes it was that I was on with my other co- uh, comic. Mm-hmm. It's been about eight years though between the two issues that I've talked about, and I want to say it's about a sixty-seven percent price increase. It went from twelve cents to twenty cents. Oh yeah, you know, and you go from you know, so we think you know, yeah, two ninety-nine to three ninety-nine is a lot. That's that's like I don't know, thirty-five, thirty-seven percent increase. I always like to live in these times when you're getting these sixty-seven, sixty-some percent price increases i don't know if i could take that <laughs> yeah but still you know you could you know for your dollar you could get five books you know i'm just speaking to the percentages yeah, no you're you're right no that's a good point that's actually a really good point though uh, i just love these old covers though it just my, my comps are eight cents more are you kidding me <laughs> i'm done <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there were people having having fits and tirades back then, the same as I'm doing today about four dollar <laughs> comics. I'm sure there were people that were like, "I can't afford twenty cents for a damn comic book." That's yeah, I was I was in a few weeks ago whenever the uh, the DC holiday special came out, and it was six dollars. And I flipped through it. And I'm like, you know what? There's nothing in here I need to spend six bucks on having to have mm-hmm. this. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. Six bucks for Jesus. I mean, it was a big, it was oversized, but and still, I was like, "There's nothing in here. I need this. I need, I need that badly." You know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, in the in the con season next year, I'll find it. Yeah, well, see, that that's me too. Yeah, we could we could talk about that for hours because that's that's totally where I'm going these days. I, I look at books and I'm doing that mental calculation of, okay, how long will it be before I see this at a con for you know fifty cents? So yeah. I, I definitely, definitely feel you on that. Well, before we get sucked into that conversation, because yeah. I could, I could totally go there. Moving on, what do you have for us? Speaking of of fifty cent finds and stuff, I actually think I got this one. I, I'm pretty sure I got this one for a quarter at a flea market not long ago. Well, up, my my folks live up in uh, in extreme North Georgia. It's almost up to what's the next state up south. South Carolina, I think. See, that's that tells you. How I don't know. I was I was educated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was educated in the American school school system. I have no idea what. There you go. Is. Yeah, exactly. I suck at geography. So whatever the hell the next state up is, they're almost up to that border. But they've got a really great flea market in their town. And every time I I make it up there, I make a point to go by, and there's this guy that's just got mad amounts of old comics. They're a little whipped. But they're usually like, you know, a quarter or if you buy a whole bunch of them, he'll knock it down to like, you know, 15, 20 cents, something like that. And every time I go up there, I get crazy amounts. I'm pretty sure that's where I got this one from. So like a quarter or less on this book. This is going back to December 1983. This is AmeriComics number five. And I looked in the Indicia, and so far as I can tell, AmeriComics was actually the name of the publisher as well. And if that is incorrect, I hope someone will will correct me on that. But 
Uh, it just says AmeriComics, and then the the little like logo thing says AC, which I presume says America, and the and the indicia says AmeriComics. So anyway, AmeriComics number five. Uh, I got this primarily for the cover. Um, I'm just I'm one of those you know judge a book by its cover kind of guys, and the cover is by uh, Pat Broderick, who I, I just you know I adore his artwork. I've always been a Pat Broderick fan. It's Pat Broderick and Bill Black, who I'm totally unfamiliar with. And uh, the character on the cover is Captain Freedom, who I'd never heard of this guy. But he's got a really awesome outfit. Let me see if I can paint a picture for you mentally. From the waist down, he totally looks like he ripped off Hawkman's pants and boots. I mean, it really (laughs) looks like Hawkman's outfit. From the waist up... He looks a lot like a mix between the current, like, uh, oh, you know what? I was going to say he looks like the current um, Dr. Midnight, but actually he looks a lot like, um, who's that new Robin? Is it Red Robin? Who's got the, like the Batman cowl, but it doesn't have ears on it. Yeah, Red Red Robin. Robin? It looks a lot like Red, Red Robin, except colored like, like the Earth 2 Robin colors. So if you can kind of so imagine that, and then maybe even throw in like a little bit of like uh, like General Glory from what was that Jail Justice League America or whatever. He he's a very dynamic looking character, but it's just when I when I think of an when I hear a name like Captain Freedom, my mind conjures up an image like Captain America. I expect the guy to be in like red, white, and blue, and this guy is in yellow green and orange so it's kind of a strange look but it's still a really cool looking uh looking outfit it's just a it's a very like earth to robin color scheme but uh i'd never heard of this guy and uh and i have one issue already of americomics it was a it's like a special or an annual or something where it's actually all the Charlton heroes were in it. It was like Blue Beetle and The Question and somebody, Peacemaker, I think, and a bunch of other guys. So I'm really not familiar with this title or this company or anything. But like I say, just just got it because of the cover. And uh, But I, I read this issue, and I really dug it. And and here's, here's the basic deal here. Um, the... Uh, the credits are even a little bit strange on this rather than like writer artist and everything. It's actually says concept slash plot is bill black script is Neil standard and awesome art. It actually says awesome art Vic bridges color by Reb black. Now this Vic bridges guy, I actually did a Google and looked him up and he doesn't seem to have done much beyond these very obscure indie books of the 80s he did some work on like fem force and some other stuff this dude is totally channeling early 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 john byrne like if you've ever seen john byrne from early charlton stuff like space 1999 or um doomsday plus one or any of that stuff that's totally what this guy's art style looks like it's really nice because i love Early, what what I like to refer at refer to as hungry John Byrne, I love that era of John Byrne because it was just there's something really really dynamic about it. Well, this story starts off and Captain Freedom is jumping out of the way of this giant piece of machinery comes crashing down around him, 
and he rescues some people that are trapped in a fire. And it turns out that he is like the resident superhero of this weird sort of like like experimental Epcot type of city thing that that these people live in and it's almost like a like a biohabitat kind of thing and it keeps falling under sabotage and Captain Freedom and his buddies are trying to figure out what what's going on and how to prevent it and and who's causing all of this and I won't get real specific into the details of the story only because the story was a little bit wonky. It was a little bit hard to follow. I don't know if this was the first appearance of this character or if this was part of a continuing story, but some of the details were a little bit hard to follow. They, if this was the first issue, then they weren't doing a very good job of setting everybody up and telling you who they were. And if it was a continuing issue, then they were literally throwing you into the middle of the story without, again, telling you who really anybody was or or what the deal was. But basically the story follows the captain as he goes from one adventure to another trying to both, you know, put out fires, but also try to figure out you know, who the saboteur is and what's going on in this situation, track this person down. What was funny to me is I'd never read this before, never even heard of this before. Yeah, I had figured out who the saboteur was from the first panel that the character comes on screen. I was like, that's the bad guy. It was just, I don't know if it comes from years of reading just way too many friggin' comic books or what, but it was just totally, to, to my mind anyway, it was just totally telegraphed who this person was. But this is one of those uh, comics that is actually done in chapters like they used to do back in the day. And the chapter that ends part or the page rather that ends chapter one is fantastic. It's a, it's a giant, it's almost a splash page because most of the page is taken up with this one panel of captain freedom falling. He's, he's knocked off a platform when he, a flamethrower is used against him and he backs up against a rail and he ends up falling over the rail and he's falling down towards the city and down towards the artificial sun that runs the city. And it's just a, it's a great perspective shot. The art is just really, really nice. And again, this guy is just totally channeling um, John Byrne. And I mean, if somebody were to were to take an isolated panel from any portion of this book and, and was to ask me, you know, identify the artist on this, I, I would have said it was John Byrne. It just it so looks like that early Charlton stuff. I really like it. Then you go to chapter two of the story, and then suddenly the the art has changed. It's Don Lomax, L O M A X. I guess right. that's pronounced how you pronounce it. But Vic Bridges continues. Uh, as the inker in this. And so I didn't like the art in the second portion as much because while you can see Vic Bridges in his, in his John Burnish style in the inks, the, the pencils weren't as, as refined as in the beginning part of the story. And the captain ends up escaping from plunging into the artificial sun by the, one of the most ridiculous means I've ever seen. He tears open the front of his uniform 
and uses it almost like a like a pair of wings or something and catches an updraft of of superheated air rising off this artificial sun and like basically glides out of the way <laughs> it's completely ridiculous because he just would not have i mean if you look at the panel where he fell there's no way he would have had time to do any of that even if even if such a ridiculous concept would work which i'm sure it would not he he didn't have enough time to even tear open his shirt or try to do any of this. It's it's really kind of silly. But he escapes. They eventually do track down who the saboteur is, which is this scientist woman who was, you know, working in their midst. And while I figured out she was the bad guy just by things she said and by her body language and stuff, the end of the story where she actually reveals why she's doing all this is very silly, silver agey. It's basically, she feels like she's done all the work yet. The men are taking all the notice and, you know, and taking all the accolades for this, you know, this city, this bio thing that they've built. And when the captain basically points out how silly that is, and then she says, oh, also, well, I love you, and you've never noticed me, so it's really <laughs> wacky. And she's going to electrocute him. She, she, He's chased her down to her secret lair, which is in the sewers underneath the city, and she's electrified the sewer water, so she's going to dunk him in. And he ends up going in. She thinks he's dead, but then he comes up out of the water, and his... Uniform, of course, is you know thermally protected or whatever, or insulated, so he wasn't electrocuted. So she, then she just decides to, to just lunge at him. And she lunges at him, and he ducks out of the way. She falls in the water. She gets zapped. And that's pretty much how the story ends. And it was just really wacky, silly fun. I really enjoyed it, but I really more enjoyed it for the concept and for the art more than the story itself. I, I, I like the idea. It's really bizarre, but I, I like the idea that this is... I, I can't quite place exactly what the genre is. I don't know if this is supposed to be post-apocalyptic or if this is supposed to be some sort of... They're bracing for some sort of possible apocalypse, and that's why they live in this thing. I mean, the entire adventure takes place in this city thing that they live in, this very like experimental, futuristic city. It's very... To my mind, anyway, it's very Epcot-ish, you know? If you're familiar with the whole concept of what Epcot was originally mm-hmm. kind of designed yeah. to be. And I almost wonder, seeing as what year this is, 1983, if that might even be on purpose, if somehow they were, you know, channeling that, you know, that enthusiasm and that whole thing, you know, because Epcot was a brand new concept and a brand new entity right around the time this book would have been coming out. So I I almost wonder if that's not so much of a coincidence after all. There is a uh, a short backup feature that I'm not going to go into. I'll just mention it real quick. It was called The Coming of Commando D. And wow, is it bizarre. It's uh I don't recognize any of the names attached to the to the thing, but it's very 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 Jack Kirby-ish. And I I almost wonder if the Commando D is some sort of uh 
homage or something to Commandy. Yeah, that's the first thing I thought of, yeah. Yeah, it feels a lot like that, but it's very... Yeah, and then when you compare it to Kirby, I was like, oh, well, how can it not be? Yeah, well, the, the art is totally channeling Jack Kirby. But the story is so strange, I, I literally could not make heads or tails of it. It looks like it, it's taking place in the future, and it looks like it's basically the last couple of human beings alive. This old wizard kind of guy gives powers to this guy to fight off an alien thing. He ends up getting miniaturized into a ring. The woman wearing the ring comes to Earth. She gets mugged and killed, and this young kid inherits the ring (laughs) and channels the power to free Commando D from it, who smashes into some cops who are revealed to be aliens. And it's like, what the hell am I reading? I, I... it's like it had it's like it had 15 different concepts going on at the same time and this story is only like i think it's 8 pages and in those 8 pages you're getting you know you're getting like Logan's run a little bit of command D you're getting a little bit of uh Rom Space Knight a little bit of New Gods all and a little bit of Adam it was like, Jesus, you know, what is this story even trying to be? It was really, really strange. But, uh, man, I again, I've got such a soft spot for just the underdog comics. You know, the, the weird, the bizarre, the, the off-the-beaten-path. As goofy and as strange as this comic was, and I don't know what where it was going or what it was trying to do, I still dug the hell out of it. I, it was just a hell of a lot of fun. This Captain Freedom concept, I'm really intrigued about this. I would love to know, you know, what what became of this, if there were ever any more. Because I think Americomics, I believe, only had one more issue. I think it was only six issues. I I could be wrong about that, but... I think you're right. I think it was only like six or so. Yeah. And I, I tried to look up a little bit of information about this. But then I felt like I was cheating because I, you know, not that there's really rules to this show, but I enjoy doing this show very much off the top of my head. Right. You know, it's kind of the whole concept is, you know, it's it's almost like a first impressions type of thing. You know, I just, I pick something up, I read it, you know, if it jogs a memory or makes me think about other comics or other creators, you know, or other characters or whatever, that's what I like to talk about or whatever. But I don't really like to cheat and go look stuff up. But I did take a quick peek, just... I was curious about Captain Freedom. And from what I saw, if, you know, if it was accurate, it looks like this was actually like uh, a golden age, like a very obscure golden age character that Americomics was bringing back, which actually, now that I think about it, shouldn't surprise me that much because that was exactly what they did with, uh, with the Charlton heroes in that one special issue I, I had where, you know, they, after Charlton folded, for uh, I guess somewhere between the folding of Charlton and the time that DC bought those characters, Americomics knocked out at least that one special where it had all the uh, those Charlton heroes. Right. So yeah, I, I like this wacky, weird, bizarre <laughs> stuff. I'd love to see this guy come back. And as a matter of fact, he, I think he'd make a really cool character if. Uh, if DC was able to get a hold of this guy, he's got a great look. You know, another character he looks a lot like now that I think about it is he actually looks a lot like the uh, original Golden Age um, Mr. Terrific 
in in a bizarre sort of way. Mm. You know, the color scheme and all. I you know, I could totally see this guy being brought back and being brought into the mainstream DCU and being like a character in like Justice Society or something like that. I, I could totally see that happening. Hmm. But uh, yeah, pretty pretty interesting book. Pretty cool. And uh, I'm going to be on the lookout for more stuff by this uh, Vic Bridges guy because oh, I dug his art style. Very cool. <laughs> Dead silence. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm reading I'm looking it up on my own stuff here trying to see what I can find about it. You mentioned colorist red black. That's actually Rebecca Black. Oh, okay. Judge by what I've been looking through oh, here. Come on. Now this was this was this was 1983. Was there really a, a need for her to to not disclose that she was a female? I mean, were were women? Oh, okay. You know what? Maybe that's, really, maybe that's really what she went by. Who knows? In chapter two, though, I just noticed this. In chapter two, she it does say colors Rebecca Black. There you go. Yeah. In in part one, it says Reb, but in part two, it does say Rebecca. So yeah, she she actually she came out in chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I. Uh, Oh, I wish you could see the art in this because it's. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know how your feelings are. I see the cover, but I don't have interiors, obviously. Yeah, I, I don't know what your feeling is on John Byrne, but I, I've always been a huge John Byrne fan. But I'm especially a, a, a fan of of early Byrne. Yeah, my 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 uh, appreciation for um, artwork to that level is very mature. Like I really can't. Uh, look at something and be able to say, "Oh, that's so and so." I mean, I'm kind of getting a little better mm-hmm. uh, with certain artists. Like, I mean, you know, the ones that are more obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I can pick out, a, you know, Carrie Frank any day of the week now because right. I've heard so much of his stuff. For example, that's very to me. It's very distinctive. Um, but there's, there's, I, I'm not that. It's only been over the last couple of years that I've uh, even read comics to the degree of the creative team being as much a part of my enjoyment as the story itself. Mm-hmm. I've always read for the story or the character or what have you. Um, and I never really followed uh, a writer or an artist from book to book. You know, if, if, if just to pick a name, cause it comes to the top of my, top of my head. If I, if Jeff Johns goes to a, uh, a character that I'm not interested in, I'm not going to follow just because it's Jeff Johns. For for example, just to pick a name, it doesn't have to be him; it can be anybody. You know, by the same token, I'm not going to stop reading Spider-Man because somebody else who wrote something maybe I didn't like, or just somebody, just because the creative team changed in general. I'm not mm-hmm. going to stop reading it just because of that. Right. Uh, it's always been about the character and the stories as well. Um, so I, it's only recently that I've t- started to take much more notice of who's who's writing it who's choose choose the artist even the inkers and colors uh, i'm noticing that more and more and i'm developing you're trying to connect names with the style and and be able to recognize that but i i couldn't do that at this point at well all. you know if, if i'm if i may be so bold i i would i would even venture to say and i'm sure that people will will you know there, there'll be some people that'll take exception to this but i i think that that's actually the better approach when it comes to comic books is to go with you know characters or concepts or universes more than creators. I think ultimately, w- with the way things change and all, I think ultimately you you'd have more potential to be happy and content. You know, be, like when 
like a creative team changes or something like that. If you're more devoted to the concept or the character, then I think you're, you're probably less likely to notice those things. You know what I mean? And, and have it affect your enjoyment. Whereas if you're more into, you know, the, the creator side of, I don't know, maybe that argument doesn't hold water, but I'm just, cause I, I remember when I was a kid, I was totally that way, like you're like you're saying. You know, I was totally about the characters and the concepts and the universe and everything, and didn't pay any attention to creators. As a matter of fact, I, John Burns probably the first one, off the top of my head anyway, that I can think of where I, I actually took notice and said, "Wow, I like this guy's art. I want to follow this guy." I'm, I'm pretty sure he was the first one. And still to this day, there's a pretty short list in my mind of both writers or artists that uh, that I'll follow from you know thing to thing. I, I'm really still more focused on you know characters and concepts. And I, I don't know. I, for me personally, I, I, I think that just works out better. I think I. I don't know. I, I, I'd be curious to hear from uh, from listeners and see what they think about that. What, I, I think it's definitely an individual thing, and I think there's merit to both. To both, and more probably the best solution is going to be uh, it's going to be a mix, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, of of both types. And it's 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 just whatever works for you. I mean, that's the nice weird thing about comics. I mean, there's enough for everybody, and it doesn't matter. It, it just doesn't matter how you look at it, as long as you're enjoying it in some way. Absolutely. It, yep. Absolutely. Well, cool. You want to call that one in the can? Yeah. Sweet. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of thecomicforums.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com, and is a registered trademark of Demonzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. They are the first and best team of mystery men ever to assemble for the cause of justice. The heroes that have been part of their ranks are legendary. They fight for America and for democracy, and yet no one has devoted a podcast to their exploits. Until now. Unfortunately, it's hosted by these guys. I don't care what Julia Schwartz says. Yeah, league sounds like a baseball team. I hate baseball. So there you go. Um, first F-bomb of the show. Um, How did you not... beat me to the first F-bomb of the show? Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey present Tales of the Justice Society of America. Fridays at twotruefreaks.libson.com.